0: messages. So, we'll have two messages on marriage, then one on parenting, um, which is the next text after this. So, think of this as kind of a mini-series in the midst of Ephesians on marriage and parenting. So, who are these messages for then? Well, if you're not married, you may wonder how relevant this is to you. And these, I want you to know that these messages really are for you as well. Here's why. First, because you may become married in the future. And this text gives us a vision for what we should be looking for, what we should be striving toward, what we should be um, expecting if we were to get married. And it gives us a gospel-centered centered vision that we don't want to find after we get married, but we want to have beforehand. Maybe you've been married before, and if that's the case, there's still a lot of learning that you and we all have to do. There's maybe some unlearning that needs to be done as well, right? Because no one's ever fully lived out the vision of marriage that we're going to see in this text. Second, if you are membered here at Zionsville Fellowship, then those who are married here need you. Um, it was not just, it's not just other married people who are qualified and competent to give advice to other married people. The Apostle Paul who wrote this was not married at the time that he's writing this. And so, we need need one another to encourage one another. And really, the struggles and challenges that someone faces in their marriage and in their family have so so many parallels with the struggles that we all face in other areas of our life as well, right? The need to forgive, the need to repent, the need to find our hope in Christ, the need to hope the best, the need to fight a judgmental, critical, suspicious spirit, the need to love and serve well. And third, this text actually does in its deepest sense, apply to all of us. If you are a Christian, you are part of the bride of Christ. That's what the New Testament calls the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, which means you are already part of this greater marriage, this greater reality, the marriage between Christ and His people. And this text shows us, by considering marriage, we learn about who Jesus really is and what it means to live as His people. Now, before we read this, I want to share a couple assumptions um, for us to have in mind. First, I know that this topic may make some of you nervous. Maybe some of you saw this text coming, and you didn't want to come this morning because you didn't want to consider the, the challenges of marriage, and, um, and so I understand that. You, maybe you've experienced and are experiencing a terrible marriage. Maybe you feel like you're recovering from deep emotional trauma. Maybe you grew up in a home that was relationally ugly and you still feel oppressed by that. So I want you to know that I am sensitive to that. And more importantly, I want you to know the Lord is sensitive to that. More sensitive than I am. And He has given us this text. He speaks to us by the Spirit through His Word and He has hope for you and comfort for you from His Word. You know, this, this text we're going to read was first written to men and women who lived in a culture that had, was filled with relational dysfunction. I mean, it, this was not written to people for them to hear this and say, yeah, that's basically what we've always thought. We're reassured in how we've been doing things, right? This is written to people who lived in a culture that needed to hear this because it was filled with broken relationships and broken marriages, and it was written to Christians, a church who did not have this altogether, which is why such an extensive, extensive section in the book of Ephesians is here, because Christians need to hear this, um, those first century ones and us today. A second assumption is that the picture of marriage that we're going to see in this text and in the Bible is true, and it's good, and it's beautiful. We believe that God created us, and that marriage is His idea. We didn't think this up at some point in human history and all kind of start to agree that it's a good idea and spread from culture to culture. It was a gift from the beginning in Genesis 2. This is God's design, and this vision of marriage, if rightly understood and faithfully carried out, two big assumptions there, right? But if rightly understood and faithfully carried out, this vision leads to flourishing for men and women and societies as a whole, and it's actually beautiful. Now, our culture, of course, would say right now, this is not good, this is not true, and this is not beautiful. So let's just all be aware that, that what we're going to be considering this morning is entirely out of step with so much of what we've been thinking as a culture. Um, and if that's what you've been thinking as well about the biblical vision of marriage, I encourage you to consider that maybe this vision that we're going to see from the Bible is actually different than you thought it was. Um, that may be different than anything you've experienced. Maybe the biblical vision is actually more beautiful than you were thinking before. So, I encourage you to give it a hearing. So, let's read this text now together, Ephesians five twenty-two to 23, and then go from there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You filled with our own inadequacy and need, and we pray that You would do what You love to do, which is to transform us by Your Spirit through Your Word. So, please cause our imaginations and hearts to be captured by this beautiful vision of true marriage and this gospel image and picture of Christ in the church, and we pray that that would begin to transform us in ways that we couldn't have planned or predicted. We pray that you would bring healing and light to darkness and give comfort to those who need comfort, hope to those who need hope, conviction and challenge to those who need to be convicted and challenged. And we pray that in all of this, you would display your love and your glory in Jesus and cause us to behold you with wonder and to, with great joy, seek to be transformed by the Spirit. Amen. All right, well, here's where we're going to head this morning and next Sunday. This morning, we're going to consider from this text the nature of marriage, the purposes of marriage, and the deepest meaning of marriage. And then next Sunday, we're going to look at the roles of marriage and the power to pull it off, the power for for marriage, right? So the roles of husbands and wives, and then the power to pull it off. And just a heads up, this, this morning, since we're going to be considering kind of this big picture, what is marriage? why does it exist, what's its deepest meaning, it may not seem at first to be very practically oriented. I don't think I have a single recommendation for you or direct practical application from the text this morning, Um, and I'm not really going to give advice this morning. Plenty of that will come next Sunday, but this is an incredibly practical message nevertheless Um, because this vision of marriage that we're going to see here if we grasp it is incredibly transformative and inspiring so i think of how i grew up loving basketball and how i'd watch michael jordan play or alan iverson play i can still even have a memory of watching alan iverson in a commercial just do this incredible move and then i think i just stopped what i was doing and went out to my driveway trying it out i don't have video thank goodness it didn't turn out well, but I was. My imagination was captured by them, and you know, watching Michael Jordan play, watching Alan Iverson play, I wasn't. You know, they weren't. They weren't pausing, giving a workshop for me, right? They weren't giving practical advice. They weren't giving tips. They were just doing what they were doing, putting this vision of the beauty of basketball in front of me, and it just propelled me to go try to see if I could make it happen, and to get out there and give it a shot and to, to put away some of my own um, bad ways of playing basketball and attempt to kind of be like them and reflect them and to become a little bit more like this beautiful image that I saw. And so when we see something as it's meant to be, then it inspires us to make it a reality in our own lives. So we don't even need advice or practical tips in order to get going in the right direction, Right? Advice is important, but you need both the gas pedal and the steering wheel, right? Just the steering wheel and directions and navigation won't give you anywhere if you don't have gas in the car, right? So this is like the gas pedal this morning. Next week there might be more steering added, but we'll at least head in the right direction and get moving there. So this morning, the nature of marriage, the purposes of marriage, and the deepest meaning of marriage. So first, the nature of marriage. What is it? How do we understand marriage? How do we define marriage? We haven't had to answer that really clearly uh, much until recently, and that's because the basic definition of marriage had been assumed in our culture. So regardless of whether or not people took the Bible seriously or followed Jesus, there was kind of a general shared understanding of what this thing we call marriage is. But in recent decades, right, there's been a widespread shift, and one of the key questions in our culture today is simply, what is marriage? Right? Even more fundamental than who should be married, how many people can be married, what what different sexes can get married, really at the heart of all of that is the question, what is it? What is marriage? Is it definable? And if so, what is it? And then from there, implications flow. And the key answer to this text in the Bible is actually right here in verse 31. We'll actually be spending all of our time mainly considering verses 31 and 32, and then next week the the whole. But this is the most foundational sentence in the Bible for understanding the nature of marriage. If you have another proposal for a different verse, I'm open to that. As far as I can tell, this is it. And it says this. You can read it with me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this isn't something that Paul, the, the apostle who was writing this, made up. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament here. He's quoting from the opening pages of the Bible from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus quoted this verse as the foundation for his teaching on marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19. The apostle Paul's quoted this before in speaking of the significance of sexual integrity. And here he brings it up again when he talks about marriage. And so, here's how I define marriage from this text. Not a perfect definition. Verse 31 is perfect, but here's here's a shot. Marriage is a covenantal union between a man and a woman. That's what marriage is. It's a covenantal union of a man and a woman. So, let's walk through that in three parts. First, it's covenantal. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. When we think about a contract, we think about something that is legally binding, but covenant combines both legal and relational aspects. So, the relationship is obviously primary in a covenant, in the marriage covenant, and that's the point, right? The, the relationship is what's primary, but the legal aspect is also important because it actually serves the relationship. It creates a secure environment for the relationship to flourish within. It brings security to love. So we can think of it this way. Without a loving relationship, right, a a legal contract would be empty. But without the legal covenant, the relationship is actually insecure. It's not stable because it would be dependent on, you know, the emotional state of the man or the woman, So, we miss this today in our culture. Our view of marriage has become largely about feeling. It's about the intensity of felt love rather than a commitment. So, we see this in a movie called Out of Africa. In the movie, uh, the characters played by uh, Meryl Streep and Robert Redford are there. So, Meryl Streep asks Robert Redford to marry her. And he says, do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? So, just think about what that what that assumes about marriage, right? Do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? That assumes that marriage is for intensifying love, and a piece of paper, therefore, isn't necessary, right? But this misses that marriage isn't a contract as well. It's a deep commitment. It's about securing our love. It's about promising that we will remain committed to loving, even when our feelings may ebb and flow. We also see this in the way many people think about vows today. Whenever I officiate a wedding, I discourage the couple from writing their own vows. Um, The reason is that because when they often do, they don't actually write vows. What they end up doing is writing expressions of their present felt love, right? They express the emotional intensity of their present experience of love. They don't actually make vows, which are promises, Um, So, obviously, expressions of present love are important. Those should be communicated. Those should be communicated right around, perhaps during a ceremony, after. I mean, it's central. It's important, but those aren't actually vows. Vows are covenantal promises. They're not mainly statements of present love. They're promises of future love, and that's why they're so meaningful and significant. So, the vows are actually my favorite part of a wedding ceremony. I've stood right here And I just get this incredible privilege of having a man and a woman right here make these vows to each other. And that moment is my favorite moment of the whole wedding ceremony. So here's how that moment looks. Usually the week before or if I forget, then the night before, I remind them to take time alone with the Lord with their vows. I'll print them off for them and say, just get alone with him because this is so significant. You are promising your lifelong love. And so, pray that the Lord would empower you to do that. Pray that in that moment He would help you mean what you're saying. Ask Him for for all the help you need. And then, then we get together during the marriage, and then it comes to this moment of the wedding vows, and here's what I say. At this time, you will make your covenant vows to one another before God and these witnesses. And then this is what we read. With love, I take you, woman, to be my wife to have and to hold from this day forward, to love you as Christ loves the church, to cherish you as I do my own body, to lead you as Christ leads me. You can see it echoes this text, right? With deep respect and honor, willingly sharing every part of my life with you as you are now part of me, remaining faithful to you with God's help, encouraging you in our Lord, in being at your side, according to God's Word, for the rest of my life. And then, with love I take you, man, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, in submission to you as we both are to Christ, with deep respect and honor, supportive of you as my leader, as the head of our home, willingly sharing every part of my life with you, as you are now part of me, remaining faithful to you with God's help encouraging you in your in our lord and being at your side according to God's word for the rest of my life I mean I'm just deeply moved right now and there's there's something all the more significant hearing two human beings say that to one another and mean it it's just incredible and they usually have rings as a symbol of their vows the bible doesn't require that one but It's great, so here's what I say. The couple has chosen rings as symbols of the solemn vows by which they have bound themselves together today. I think that's one of the most serious things I say, the whole ceremony. It might be the most serious. These rings are symbols of the solemn vows by which they have bound themselves together today. They are visible reminders to themselves, to one another, and to everyone around them that they are united to one another, and they have promised their faithfulness to one another for life. This ring is a symbol that I'm saying to myself, to Christina, to all of you, to everyone else, that I have promised her my faithfulness for life, and I'm bound to her. So, this is intended to be a lifelong covenant, not just expressions of present love, but promises of future love. Second, it's a union. This is a comprehensive union. Marriage joins two people together in a comprehensive way. Verse 31 says that they're joined together to become one flesh. The man leaves his father and mother, and cleaves or joins to his wife, and there's strong language here, right? Joining together and becoming one flesh. So, marriage joins two people together to become one relationally and socially, right? The husband leaving the father and mother to join to the wife. This is a joining together economically. They're now united together as a family unit, willingly sharing everything. There shouldn't be these little private secret bank accounts, right? Willingly sharing everything together, joined together physically. This union is to be ideally consummated by sex. It's a comprehensive union. Third, it's a covenantal union between a man and a woman. So, we'll come back to this next week when we consider the roles of husband and wife, but verse 31, quoting Genesis 2, you can see it again, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, right? And the two, the man and the wife shall become one flesh. So it's not just two people in general. It's not just a person shall be joined together to another person or several people, right? This is a man and a woman. And the reason for this is reflected in the way that God made men and women different. Just before this vision of marriage was given in Genesis chapter 2, God had created Adam, and He said that He would create another human being uh, or another, yeah, being who was like Adam but different. So not totally different, like the animals, but also not totally the same, not another man, but someone who would be a complement to him. So, this is the nature and the definition of marriage. It's a covenantal union between a man and a woman. So, let's move second to the purposes of marriage. What did God design this for? What are its purposes? Well, there's several, won't draw attention to all of them today, Uh, But here's a few of them. We'll consider a few that we see from Genesis 1 to 2 and reflected in this text here. So first, companionship. When God made Adam, Genesis 2 says that it's a striking statement. God made Adam and it says this, it was not good that the man should be alone. So Adam's there and there's no other human being yet. And And God says, right, this is before sin entered the world, right? It's not good that man should be alone. So, this is kind of the first problem of sorts in the world. It's not a problem because there's some deficiency in God's work. It's that He wasn't completing His work yet. He was on His way to completing it, and until it's completed, it's not good. And so, here's Adam alone, and this isn't just talking about Adam. This is talking about humanity, right? It's not good for a human being to be alone. We need relationships, And the deepest reason for this is because we are made in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are made in the image of the triune God of communal love, Father, Son, and Spirit always existing in this eternal relationship of effusive mutual honoring and love. So, Adam and Eve were made in God's image, and therefore they need this. Adam needed that, and so God provided true friendship, and now they can multiply and create a world teeming with communal life filled with true friendship. Now, marriage is not the only answer to loneliness. God also provides families and church families and true friendships, but marriage does form a true friendship as well. In the Song of Solomon, Um, The woman says to the man, this is my beloved and this is my friend. And that word for friend is is a a rare Hebrew word. It's the one that, as far as I can tell, is the strongest word for friendship and relationship. So marriage does form an incredibly deep friendship. It's this comprehensive union where two people are brought together and totally exposed. Totally exposed to one another. They're to be completely vulnerable with one another. You know, right after Adam and Eve are brought together in that first marriage covenant, it says they were naked and not ashamed. That is not common in our world once sin entered the world, right? Naked and not ashamed, but this this beautiful ideal picture where two people can be totally transparent um, without shame and fear of what the other may say or judge or criticism or competition— And this is also why the Bible reserves all sexual activity, every bit of it, all of it, any form, for the context of marriage alone, because it's incredibly vulnerable. If you have sex outside of marriage or before marriage, you are saying to the person, in essence, I will be naked with this part of my life, but not the rest. I'm not going to trust you with all of this part of my life, Just this part. In other words, I'm not willing to be totally open with you. I'm keeping a big part of myself back, and I'll just give you this. And so, it's the covenant of marriage that actually creates the possibility for total vulnerability, because the covenantal promises secure the relationship. Remember, it's bringing together the legal and the relational, right? It's it's both a present expression of love, though, but it's bound with a promise of future love with the promise of, of acceptance. So, our vows say, I will love you comprehensively, not just physically, and therefore it creates an environment um, where ideally transparent, transparency can take place. So, that's one purpose of marriage, companionship, true friendship. A second purpose is this, it's partnership for service and mission. God commissioned Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the world with image bearers. And he commissioned them to rule over all things, to subdue all things. So, we're to make culture, we're to create, we're to design, we're to bring order out of chaos, we're to serve the world, we're to bless the world. This is a commission to humanity. But Adam wasn't going to be able to do that alone. So, one of the purposes of marriage is procreation, right, to multiply, being fruitful and multiplying. That doesn't mean, by the way, that every marriage can or must have children. It does imply, though, that every marriage should be open to children. And when we get to the New Testament, we find that this kind of creational or cultural commission is modified. It now also includes making disciples. So think about it this way through marriage, the world is filled with image bearers, right? People who who reflect God's image. They're made in God's image. But now that sin has entered the world, Every one of those image bearers fails to reflect God's glory. We fail to reflect God's character. We fail to rule the world as He would rule it. And so, now Jesus has come, and He has lived this perfect, uh, reflective life that we fail to live. He died on the cross for our failures to do this, and then He rose again, and now He's pouring out a Spirit to remake a new humanity in God's image, to perfectly reflect the character of God in the world. And so, now as those who have come to Jesus, we're being remade to reflect God's image, the image of Christ in the way that we live, and we're called now to make disciples. What's making disciples? Well, there's a parallel with that initial commission to be fruitful and multiply. And actually, the book of Acts picks up that language of being fruitful and multiply and applies it to the spread of the gospel and the making of disciples, because what we're doing is we're making a new humanity. The Spirit, through us, through speaking the Word of Jesus, is entering into people's hearts, giving them new hearts, bringing them into this restored relationship with God so they can begin to reflect God's image in the world. So we're remaking humanity by the power of the Spirit. So in other words, this is partly why marriage is less central in the New Testament than it was in the old. Because this future eternal kingdom, which Jesus says there will not be marriage, this is actually now dawned. It's actually broken into the present reality and world. And now we're called to make disciples, to fill the world with image bearers. We can do that by parenting. We can also do that through mentoring and disciple making relationships. We can do that in a myriad of ways because now we have a commission not just to multiply human beings, but to multiply disciples. We actually have the ability to to have people bear God's image more faithfully as they rest in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So, those are two central purposes of marriage. Just to summarize, One of them is companionship, true friendship, total openness, unity, comprehensive union. The second purpose is partnership for mission, partnership for service, partnering together to reflect God's image in the world, to bless the world, to serve the world, to make disciples in the world. So finally, now let's consider the deepest meaning of marriage. One of the most surprising aspects of this text is. How much space is given not to talking about husbands and wives directly, but talking about Jesus and his relationship with the church? Over half of the time, he's focused on the relationship of Christ and the church in this paragraph. In verses 22 to 24, you can see there he says that the church is called to submit to Christ, to follow his loving leadership. And that's really the model for wives to submit to husbands following their loving leadership, which we'll talk about next week. And then in verses 25 to 30, he says that Christ loves the church and cherishes the church and sacrifices Himself for us, and that's the model for husbands to cherish and love and sacrifice for their wives. And we'll come back to that next week as well. And then in verse 32, this is really the most incredible statement in this whole section. It's one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. So, Paul has just quoted… The essence of marriage from Genesis, right, in verse 31. Two shall become one flesh. Incredible. And then he says this. You can follow along with me. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So let's think this through. What refers to Christ and the church? What is he saying refers to Christ in the church? The answer is marriage. He quotes this union of a man and a woman in marriage from Genesis 2.24, and then he doesn't say what I would expect him to say. He doesn't say marriage is a profound mystery. I mean, when I'm up here officiating at a wedding ceremony, just a profound mystery. Two people coming in as one going to bed at night, as, or coming in as two, going to bed as one. I mean, just this, this unity happens through that day. The Lord binds together through those vows. It's incredible. So, but Paul doesn't say marriage is a profound mystery, and I'm saying, and I'm talking about marriage. And then he, he doesn't go on to say, but there's also this great parallel that we can see between this profound mystery, which is marriage, and Christ and the church. So, let's talk about that parallel. No, what he says is I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying that marriage was designed by God to refer to Christ and the church. So, we may have thought, in other words, that Paul is a good illustrator. He's talking about marriage, and he's like, how do I bring this home to them? How do I help them just See how marriage is great. I've I got to find an illustration of this in the world. And he looks around and thinks, he's like, oh, I know. Uh, Jesus in the relationship with the church is kind of like that. Um, you know, there's love. Um, so, let's, let's make that parallel. And he kind of illustrates it um, with Jesus in the church. Marriage is kind of like that. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying Jesus and the church are an illustration of marriage. He's saying the reverse. Marriage was created to be an illustration of Christ in the church. So, this is where you kind of submit that little gift that's like the mind blown, right? Because think about this. I mean, before sin even entered the world, God gave marriage, and yet marriage was given before sin entered the world to picture the redemption from sin, right? Incredible. And there's one word here he says to also reinforce this he uses this word mystery. What's the mystery? You could read that and think that, well, it's this mysterious union of a man and a woman. It's mysterious. How does that happen? But, I mean, that is mysterious, right? Um, he just quoted Genesis, two, two will become one flesh. What a mystery. Incredible. I'm, I'm always in awe of this, as I mentioned, when I, when I see this happen. But that's not what Paul says is the mystery. Mystery is not marriage itself. The mystery is the union of Christ and the church and how marriage pictures that. This is actually how Paul uses the word mystery. It's almost a technical term for him. For Paul, this word doesn't refer to something mysterious, like, whoa, what's that? Um, instead, this, this word refers to something that was hidden before and is now revealed by God through the gospel. And in particular, it, re- it refers, he uses this word mystery to refer to the gospel, how the, the, the wonder and scope of Christ's redemption was hidden before Jesus came, it was there in part. We couldn't see the whole thing. And then now that Jesus has come, whoa, it's all revealed, and we see it now, and it's incredible. So, look, for example, back in chapter 1. He uses this word, mystery, in verses 9 and 10. He says that as, as we, become, when we become Christians, this is one of the blessings we get. God has made known to us the mystery of His will, same word, the mystery of His will, according to His purpose... What is it? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. So, the mystery is God's plan to unite everything in and under Jesus as the head and the king over all things. Jesus' work through this cross and resurrection, bringing unity to… reconciling people to himself, reconciling people to one another, bringing unity in and under his kingship. That's the mystery. And then he says this again in chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. He repeats it several times. He, say, he talks about how the mystery was made known to me by revelation in verse 3. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6 This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body with Jewish people and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is the gospel. The big picture vision of God's grace to us in Jesus. It's the message that Jesus has lived and died and risen again for us and for our salvation. That He's bringing people into unity in and under Christ. And now Paul says that marriage exists to picture that mystery. That beautiful plan of salvation. So Paul's saying, in other words... As he's talking about marriage, he says, look back to Genesis 2. Look at that foundational marriage. That marriage and marriage itself exists for this purpose. It is ultimately all about Jesus' marital relationship with his people. God created marriage to be a picture of Christ in the church. All of human history exists to display God's marriage-like love for his people. You can summarize the story of the Bible like this, as one pastor did. God says, I loved you, but I lost you, and I want you back. God calls Himself, His relationship with Israel, a marriage in the Old Testament. The book of Hosea gives us this strong image of God's marital love for His people. We looked at that a few years ago if you were here shows us better than anywhere else. God was a faithful husband to Israel, loving and providing for her. Israel was unfaithful to the Lord consistently, and then God promised one day He would bring His people back to Himself in a true marriage relationship. So, you can read this with me. It should be on the screen. Hosea 2.16 says this, "'And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband.'" And verses 19 to 20, "'I will betroth you to me forever.'" I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So a day will come, God says, when he will create an eternal marriage, and he will give us new hearts to be faithful to him. And then Jesus arrived, and in John chapter 3, John the Baptist knows what's happening when he sees Jesus. He says he rejoices because the bridegroom is here and he's a friend of the groom. And John the Baptist was just giving the message to say, the groom's here, the marriage is about to happen, come to him. And Paul says repeatedly that the, the church and Christ have this marriage-like relationship. He says to one church, I betrothed you to Christ, which is why he's so eager for Christians to be faithful to their husband. And then we can turn back to Ephesians 5 here in our text, And just notice what this says about Christ and His relationship with the church. We'll get next week to how we're to reflect this in our marriages. But just look at His sacrificial love in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So, He gave Himself up for us by becoming the perfect, faithful, loving husband, giving Himself up. On the cross for us. He took the judgment we deserve so we could have the blessing of his love forever. And then look at his purpose to renew and cleanse us, next in verse 26. He did this that he might sanctify her, his bride, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus died. For us, not just to kind of give us forgiveness and a ticket to heaven and then live our life however we want. He died for this comprehensive union to happen with himself. He died to, to cleanse us and renew us and, and cause us to live lives of integrity, reflecting his care. Look at his affection and care in verses 20, 20, or 29 and 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. So, Jesus views us like He's the head and we're the body, and He cherishes us. If you're in Christ, He cherishes you and nourishes you and cares for you and loves you. And then we move to the end of the Bible, and this culmination of history, and Revelation 19 describes Jesus' return, and it says this, "'Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory." For the marriage of the Lamb, referring to Him as a Lamb because He died for us, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, Jesus is viewed as this groom awaiting the consummation of the marriage union with the church. History will culminate in a wedding feast, like the party of a wedding reception. So, this is what marriage is ultimately about. What is the story of the Bible? It is the story of God pursuing a wayward bride to bring her back and make us ethically beautiful and eternally happy. What is the gospel, the good news at the heart of Christianity? It's the message of Christ giving His life for His bride and cherishing her forever. What is God's purpose in creating the world? Why did He even do all of this? Why is everything here? Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. That the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse toward whom He might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature, and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension and love, positive condescension, love and grace that was in his heart, and that in this way God might be glorified. So God created the world and orders history for his glory to display who he is. And the way in which he wanted to glorify himself was by having the Son of God have a bride that he might pour out his heart of love toward. And we might say, wow, thank you. And in that way, he's honored. So I think just last minute or so, this is both radical and deeply resonant in our culture and with every culture. Radical because... I mean, we're an increasingly secular culture, right? Just the absence of God and taking Him into account for anything in life. We don't want to find meaning and significance in a transcendent reality outside of what we see, right? Our culture seeks to find meaning in relationships or various forms of success or sexual fulfillment. Uh, One philosopher said that the world in front of us now seems just disenchanted. It's kind of the result of trying to find meaning in these things alone. So to say that ultimate reality is a romance, to say that God is pursuing people with faithful love, just sounds incredible. Um, And yet, this also does deeply resonate with us. Because the more that we try to live without this sense of transcendent meaning, the more that we still long for it. We're still seeking for that in these other places that we're searching for meaning. We still feel that we should have deep meaning in life, that life and love, when we experience it in certain moments, do just seem to tap into something far beyond anything we can explain, something that's transcendent and weighty. And we long for that. And our culture still longs for that. And so, what we're seeing here is that our lives and human history has meaning, it has deep significance. And here's why. Because we are part of a drama. I mean, we love stories and epic dramas, heroic dramas, and romances because we're part of one. It just taps into who God made us to be. That's why we love this stuff so much, because we're actually part of a story. All of human history exists to display God's glory and His grace. History is the truest, most epic romance story. So, husbands and wives, we'll get specific next week, but this is the vision. And so, my prayer is that the Lord would let this just have your imaginations be captured by it Um, and be inspired to reflect it into your marriage. Your marriage is sacred, and it matters to God and to the unmarried Christians, you are part of this marriage story. When Jesus returns, He said people will not be given in marriage. Why? Because marriage will have served its purpose to point to the marriage of Christ and the church, and that will be the reality. So marriages will be give way. We'll still have the truest of friendships, no doubt, between one another. But because the reality is there of God's people with God, and so. For you who are not married, you could not be more secure in the love of God. He's made a covenantal union with you at your baptism and around that time. He didn't just promise present feelings toward you. He promised eternal love to you. And to those who are not yet trusting Christ, you are invited, welcomed to get in on this. In fact, the Bible commands you to get on this, in on this and invites you and draws you because God, God is not looking for worthy people. And the whole point of this story is that He goes after sinners. He goes after people who have spurned His love time and time again. He just says, come, trust me, receive my grace, give up your life of rejecting me, and let's make this work. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you thankful. We pray that you would continue to capture our imaginations with reality. We thank you that our life is not meaningless, that it doesn't just have a fleeting significance, but that the longings in our own heart and the drives in our own life tap into something real and deep and weighty. And so we pray that you would help us to enjoy your love for us in Christ by the Spirit. We pray that you would encourage us to strengthen our marriages and the marriages of people around us. We pray that we would Rest secure in your marital love for us. And we pray that this would be a winsome, attractive vision for our culture, and that you would draw people to yourself as they hear the message of your grace through Jesus and as they see it portrayed in faithful marriages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand to receive a benediction from God's word. And a reminder that um, benedictions don't just conclude our service, they really function to transition. We're just taking the grace we've received in this service, and we're seeking to let a benediction function like a bridge to carry that into our everyday life because we recognize that what matters, what happens here on Sunday mornings matters for every moment of our everyday lives. We don't have a, a firm shift that happens between sacred and secular, right? And so, benediction is one, one way of us expecting God's grace in the moments to come this week. So, in light of that, uh, feel free to receive this. You can put out your hands if you'd like to. By the way, I, I put out my hands when I do it. I know traditionally some, some do this because I'm, I'm receiving this with you. So, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this week. Go in peace.